Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. Can you imagine being offered $7 million as an 18-year-old kid? On top of that, having the pressure of an entire nation, a microscope looking at your every move, analysing your performance, and criticising your mistakes. Tom Boyd excelled in sports as a kid, and at the age of 18, he joined the GWS Giants as the AFL's number one draft pick, and was later recruited to play for the Western Bulldogs on a record $7 million contract. In 2016, Tom was instrumental in the Bulldogs' drought-breaking premiership win, playing arguably the greatest game of his career and helping steer the team to ultimate victory. However, in 2019, following years of struggle with depression and anxiety, Tom made the decision to walk away from the AFL, leaving the fame and success of football behind for a happier life. Tom's now a public speaker and mental health advocate, and he's just released his first book, Nowhere to Hide. I found this interview really insightful. It was so amazing to hear from Tom and learn from someone that had, at such a young age, what people spend their lifetime striving for and had the realisation that it wasn't what he wanted. Having the self-awareness and foresight to be able to make that kind of decision at such a young age and choose to listen to his gut and his intuition and do something that he felt like he needed to do. It takes a huge amount of courage and there's so much to learn from Tom's story. I really encourage you to listen to this. I learnt so much from talking to Tom and I was blown away by the wisdom that he has at still such a young age. Thanks again for supporting our podcast week in, week out. We can't do it without you. And just a reminder that if you want to join the Move Your Mind community, you can find all of the links at moveyourmind.me and you can purchase the Move Your Mind book by going to nickbrax.com slash book. Tom, thanks for making the time, mate. I'm glad we were able to finally get there between between time zones and everything else, but super excited to have this chat with you today. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. Obviously, we were just chatting before we started recording, and just trying to juggle all of the different things in life, um, you know. And you know, we add in like commuting sometimes, and then working hybrid other times. Like I feel like post COVID, workloads have actually gone up to like 120 percent, particularly if you do sort of like people facing work. Um, so yeah, anyway, logistically we worked it out, man, and, uh, and here we are. We got there. We got there, mate. But um, yeah, I guess before before we get into it, can would you mind just giving, I mean, a lot of people know your story, obviously, and a lot of our listeners will know your story. But for anyone that doesn't, would you be able to just give a bit of an, an overview about sort of where you've come from and how you've gotten to where you are now and, and what you're now doing? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll try and squeeze it in as quickly as possible. Obviously, we only have a, a period <laughs> of time uh, together today and I don't want to speak the whole time. Um, so I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, you know, massive sport addict from a young age, basketball and football sort of primary ones for me. 
by the age of 15, um, I was the state captain for the Victorian football side. And I was also basically selected in the state squad for the Victorian basketball side alongside the likes of Ben Simmons and Dante Exum. They're definitely better than I ever was. Don't worry, I wasn't going to go play in the NBA. But essentially got to the stage where I was doing, I think, 12 sessions of sport a week um, and really had to, silly as it may sound, decide which profession I wanted to go down in terms of the two sporting opportunities I had. Uh, and I always felt, you know, football was where my, my heart truly lay. I mean, I grew up uh, looking at, you know, my father uh, on the, the the brick nicotine stained wall of, of uh, Mullum Mullum Reserve for my, my junior football club, Norwood. And he was holding the Premiership Cup in black and white and had a VB getting poured over his head. So they, and he was always my hero. So that was sort of where I wanted to end up playing footy, maybe not in black and white, but. Nevertheless, um, I went down the football path and, and the next two years, um, you know, were remarkably successful. Um, you know, I can say it now because, you know, uh, if you say you're doing really well when you're actually doing it, it's arrogance. But if you look back, I can be relatively realistic that I had probably one of the, the best last two years to a, to a draft um, sort of experience that you can pretty much have. I've selected in you know, the national side uh, uh, for the AIS, I've played in, in a national championship for Vic Metro, um, won a TAC Cup premiership at the state level, TAC Cup team of the year player twice, All-Australian leading goal kicker, um, and eventually was picked up as the first overall pick in, in the 2013 national draft, um, which was, yeah, a fantastic honour. And um, then moved straight up to, to Sydney, 10 days post my, my final school exam, I was a, an AFL footballer. Mm. And a couple of days after that, I was starting my pre-season, living with two strangers in a different state, going from amateur to professional um, and left behind many of the things that really I valued around, you know, balance between my school and my sport and my family. And now sort of my whole life was consumed with, with football. And, and to expedite the story, um, in some degree, uh, around the middle of the year, uh, I was offered a seven-year, seven million-dollar contract to become probably the second highest-paid player, to my knowledge, in AFL history at the age of eighteen um, by the Western Bulldogs. Um, and after a tumultuous trade period, six months, sort of post that that offer first being tabled to me, um, I, I managed to to get the trade through, even though I was still contracted to the Giants and amidst quite a bit of turmoil, uh, and returned to play at the Western Bulldogs um, for the following four and a half seasons before retiring at the age of uh, 23 in 2019. And, and amidst that, had you know, probably the most scrutinised um, career perhaps ever at that stage for a young, particularly for an 18, 19-year-old. I don't think anyone had ever been sort of under the spotlight as much as me at that age. And that was due to obviously the, the selection um, position that I was taking the draft and also that contract. But even more so, it was the success in 2016 where I was a part of a premiership winning side um, for the Western Bulldogs for the, the first premiership uh, since 1954 for the Western Bulldogs and a, and a really significant moment in the club's history. So um, within that was, you know, a number of mental health issues, which we can dig deeper into um, after, I suppose, the summation of my career to date. But um, in 2017, six months after, you know, being on the stage of the MCG in front of 99,981 people, uh, and being one of the better players in the, on the day and with a with a fantastic moment that sort of stood the test of time as one of the, the greatest goals or the most heralded goals in grand final history. Um, I hadn't slept in weeks. I needed to take time off my job. Uh, my body was breaking down. I was getting sick. 
struggling to concentrate and I was yeah in the darkest part of, of my life um, and had to basically, under all the scrutiny of being an AFL footballer getting paid a million dollars a year, have to tell everyone that I yeah, wasn't okay and that I need time uh, to, to recuperate. Um, got back to playing some football post that uh, after many hours of therapy and and, uh, and work on myself and, and the things that, that sort of are important to me and support from family and friends and um, decided at the end of uh, 2018 for the first time that I was probably ready to retire. I was injured at this stage, but got some really good advice from the club doctor at that, at that time and was told essentially, um, don't make life-changing decisions when you're injured. Wait till you get back out on the field and if you still don't, don't want to play, then um, you know, go ahead and do so. And um, that was certainly the case. And, and in May 2019, I, I walked away from the final two and a half years of my contract and, and the proportional amount of money I handed back to the footy club over $2 million and um, decided to, to move on to the next chapter of my life. And that was really, you know, unknown, I suppose. But the North Star was that I wanted to work in the, the space of positive mental health. And I wanted to help people understand how challenging, but also how important it is. Uh, and since then, I've, you know, basically comprised a life through all of the chaos of COVID. Uh, and now obviously coming out the other side where I get to do that in a number of different means. So I'm an ambassador for Lifeline Australia, um, obviously one of the most important services that we can offer young people and people more broadly who are struggling in terms of having someone to answer the call when they're, you know, really, really um, in their lowest moments. I'm also an ambassador for WorkSafe, and that's really around getting the the message of mental health and the importance of it out through country football and Nepal, um, which is really the most difficult area of Victoria in particular to reach. Uh, I work for a company called Everperform, which is a technology business, which looks at essentially improving the overall performance of the workplace, which includes wellbeing, um, as opposed to just looking at productivity. And finally, uh, through COVID, managed to write my first book, Nowhere to Hide, which um, is really a, a look behind the curtain of a young person trying to find their feet uh, in the spotlight. And I think, you know, the funny thing is, is that whilst I may have you know, lived a life that was relatively unique or definitely unique, uh, the, the, the questions I ask myself are the same questions that, that many, many people and many young people ask themselves every single day. And um, I wanted to make sure that people understood that regardless of your circumstances, whether they look perfect or not, um, the challenges certainly can can uh, can pop up in your life, and that being honest and open about them and dealing with them proactively is really the way to go. Absolutely, mate. Well, yeah, thank you so much for for sharing that, and it's a powerful story. I mean, I uh, knew a little bit about it before this, and I went and watched, you know, looked up in more detail, and I mean, it's I think it's an amazing message what you're doing, and you know, you're still so young now, like to be having the level, I guess, of maturity that you have to be getting this message out there, and you know, it, it is. It's I think it more than ever, it's an important message in society because we, you know, li we live behind a screen, we're looking at people's highlight reels on social media, and we live in such a capitalistic world where everyone is sort of looking for, you know, what's next and how do I, you know, get what that other person has, and we don't realize what is actually going on behind the scenes, so. It's just yeah. so important to, you know, get back to that, get back to basics and realize, you know, how do we be grateful for what's in front of us and how do we actually work out, you know, what we want, which like you're saying, you need that time when you're growing up to when you're in your, you know, late, late teenage years, early twenties to work that out. Yeah. I mean, how do we expect young people to be grateful for what they have when they can see the entire world? Like, you know, when we grew yeah. up, I mean, I don't know how, how would you, are you? I'm 35 now, so a bit older 30, than you, mate. Yeah. 
yeah, not too much older. Yep. I just turned 27. <laughs> <Get> <laughs> but even with me, right, so I, yeah. I just missed the social media age realistically going through school. I mean, Instagram wasn't really a thing. It hadn't matured into what it is today. Um, you know, MySpace was around, but that was a weird sort of engagement. Didn't have as much traction as the social media companies now. And Facebook wasn't the same either. Like it just didn't have the same influence that perhaps Instagram and, and of course, TikTok and the, you know, the wonders of the world that have existed in the, in the in the past five or six years have really basically painted a world where instead of looking at the, the people around you and benchmarking yourself against 10 people, you're benchmarking yourself against, you know, 5 billion, which is crazy. And, you know, I think the thing that I always, um, you know, thought about myself was, you know, as I was going through my initial struggles, which was really around like lack of sleep and anxiety, particularly in my first season at the Giants, um, what the first thing was I didn't understand what it was. I, did, I wasn't taught about it at school. Um, and I went to a good school in, in Croydon Hills. Um, and we learned about sort of things holistically, but just never, it just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing in 2013 when I, um, when I graduated. So, it was a foreign sort of feeling to me and a foreign sort of concept. But what I really felt like was if I can only get the outcome in my job that I want, things will improve. And I always just felt like the outcome came first as opposed to looking at life and going, this is the life that I want to live and then the outcome will follow. Mm-hmm. And the story I told myself for, for years and years was, I'm so unique and we're all unique people and, and it's certainly true. It makes us complex and interesting and fascinating and, and the sort of social interactions and ecosystems that we build as people are, are things that, you know, are, are things to wonder at. But with that being said, as people, we generally experience the emotional experience of life in a relatively similar way. We have bad days. We have good days. We have really challenging periods of time in our life. There's grief. There's loss. You know, and for me, the barrier to entry, I suppose, for asking for help and support was the fact that I just didn't think anyone could possibly understand me. I was like, number one draft pick, there's only been 30 of them. You know, premiership player at 21, there's only 44 Western Bulldogs premiership players ever. $7 million contract, I'm the one of one. The only person who's ever been offered that at the age of 18. So when I added all those things together, it not only stopped me seeking psychological support, but in a sense, it was like, you know, how is my coach going to understand the experience that I'm going through? How can someone possibly understand what it's like to be abused in the street when you're 19 and told that you're worthless? Or, you know, how can anyone, you know, understand what it's like to stand in a bar at a birthday and end up in the paper because you had, you know, a drink with your friends. Like I didn't, I just, I didn't think anyone could understand that experience. And, um, you know, one of the great lessons that I learned and I tried to get out in the book is that, you know, we are all people and we experience these things, you know, relatively similarly. And there is no excuse or reason for you not to, to be able to access help. There's no shame. There's no guilt that should be associated with it. Your problems are just your problems and, and you need to deal with them uh, as such. 100%. And, you know, I'm listening to everything you're saying, and I can sort of relate to so many of the experiences you had where I was, you know, grew up in a well-known family. I was thrown into the media at a very young age, getting in, you know, negative situations and having a lot of things thrown onto me and dealing with my own issues and having severe anxiety, severe mental health issues. And, you know, I'm thinking, what the hell's wrong with me? Like, how do I don't know how to talk about this. What do I do? Um, and it sort of led to that similar 
cause. I've I've got to get this message out there to help other people know. And the more you sort of talk about it, and even for me hearing your story, that helped me just hearing that because I think as humans, we we we're storytellers. We learn from storytelling, and we you know we like what you're saying before. We tell ourselves when we're going through something that that we're unique. There's something must be something wrong with me. Why am I different? But every every single person is going through their own version of something we're all you know like you said we've all got similar emotions we all have similar things that you know we go through and the more we can relate and talk about it the more we can sort of push this forward and start to actually help people and you know make these societal changes yeah i mean what's the number one differentiating factor between the human species and every other you know creature on earth is language right like that's how we communicate it's how we uh, we connect with each other and it's one of the things that, you know, I've found to be most useful with regards to understanding my own story because you can't tell it until you know it, right? And, you know, the funny thing that I found with writing the book was, um, and, and I know that you've written one as well, is that when you talk about things, there's sort of like a rhythm to it, right? Like we're bouncing off each other. I'm bouncing from topic to topic. I can give you the summation of my life story in the two and a half minutes that I did at the opening question, right? But when you're writing about it, in particular, when you're trying to paint a picture of an experience or a moment in time, you actually have to almost go back to that moment and re-experience it to a degree. And you're not going to get 100% of it, but you're going to get 30 or 40 or whatever the number is, sort of arbitrary at this stage. But that's, that's the bit that I found most interesting and challenging about writing about moments, particularly when I was really struggling or moments where perhaps I wish I'd done things differently or you know, where I wasn't proud of the, the the space that I was in or I felt guilt or shame or whatever it was. It was like, okay, so I have to basically sit there in a dark room or in a room, you know, completely alone for 20 minutes staring at this screen going, what was I thinking about and what was I feeling at the worst moments in my life? Because that's really where the essence of the, you know, the insight is for people who read the book. And, you know, perhaps it was more cathartic, I'd say, than just just talking about it. And it definitely gave me insight, which I can now relay orally rather than than just in the written word. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, we tell ourselves all of these things and we look at our lives or the lives of others. And if we go, if we get it one, that thing and this thing and, you know, piece five or six things together, that's happiness. That's what it's going to be. And, you know, that exists so much in the workplace too, where you just go, if I just get that promotion or I just, you know, finish this project or just do this or just do that, like there's always a silver bullet in our minds that's going to fix our problems. And I think, you know, for me, it was always just trying to get the outcome on the football field that was going to fix all of the issues I was facing in life. And at the end, you know, what I found was, you know, it was changing my life that fixed the problems, not the, not the other way around. Which is, I mean, it's that's what's it's so powerful because it, it's I haven't heard a story like yours where you know, like you said, the the only player to get that kind of contract at such a young age and to make that decision to to walk away from it to be doing the thing that you know so many kids in Australia they would you know do anything to be in that position, but you had that realization and you got to experience it and see firsthand. Okay, well, this you know isn't the silver bullet it's not the thing that's going to just solve all my problems and make me happy forever just because i've achieved this thing you know what do i actually want who who am i what do i care about um and to make that to be able to make that decision i think takes a huge amount of self-awareness and a lot of just a lot of strength a lot of mental strength to do it but it's i think such a powerful example to send to other people well it's like um 
Yes, I, what I see is the great challenge of the world today is that, you know, people are getting, they get boiled down to just numbers or things, right? Like, you know, how many followers have you got on Instagram or, you know, how many dollars do you earn or what is your job? Or for me, how many kicks, marks and handballs did you get on the weekend? And when I was growing up, the sentiment that I was sort of was drilled into me by my mother in particular, who's Danish and sort of from uh, the Scandinavian sort of way of life in a sense is they're quite a proud group of people, but there is this sort of inherent niceness and politeness and sort of properness that's associated with them. And her biggest thing um, was, you know, mind your manners, be polite to people. There is a, you know, core value in treating people well. And I always held on to that. I always felt like that was something that was really important to me. And the other thing that they instilled in me greatly was education. And education was always the number one imperative in terms of my priority list growing up. Though I must say, it kind of became a bit more difficult when it became evident I was going to get drafted, particularly I'd pick one or at least high in the draft. But when I went through the football journey, I found that no matter what I said, did or, you know, experienced or provided or contributed, if I didn't get the outcome on the weekend, I was boiled down to an individual who was a failure or not important or a disappointment or whatever it was. And sure, look, some of this was definitely in my own head, but that is the the greatest thing that I felt was in conflict with me as a person. And one of the, basically the core reason why I left football in the end was not because I was sad or depressed or, you know, I wasn't going through my mental health challenges anywhere near to the degree that I was two years prior. I was just purely at odds with the fact that I felt like football didn't align with who I was as a person. And it, and it really felt like that it directly conflicted with what I thought was important. And that's why I, you know, decided that the best choice for me was to walk away because at the end of the day, you know, I'm a realist. I feel like I'm relatively, you know, authentic in the things that I say and I'm relatively self-aware. If I kept playing, under the guise of, oh, I'll just see how I go. And I didn't have the passion and and commitment that I needed to play football at the top level. I would have cost three players, four players, their actual opportunity to live out their dream. That's the calculus that happens because, you know, the average player salary is sort of in the realms of $300,000 a year. Most of that is basically floated by the top 10 players in every team. The rest are all sort of on, you know, 150, 175 grand plus, um, plus match payments. And, all of those players couldn't fit into a million if um, if that million wasn't there for them to, to take. And I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. Uh, I would have ruined every relationship that I had at that football club and um, certainly would have ended up, I'm sure, in a, in a worse place than I did. Thank you so much for supporting Move Your Mind. We're expanding the offerings of the organization and we're tailoring everything we do to suit you guys and to try and answer to all of your needs and the questions that you send in. The book is available globally. You can find all of the links at nickbrax.com slash book. And we've just released the Move Your Mind community. We've currently got a men's community group, a women's community group, a general group. We're going to be loading up other groups. And you can find all of the links at moveyourmind.me. This group's been created based on the needs of what we've heard and learnt throughout running Move Your Mind. And we have live events. We've got courses. We've got huge amounts of value the ability to share information share ideas 
work in groups together to, to grow and share your learnings, to learn about different topics. You get email reminders. There's a whole lot of features in there. We're constantly updating it, and we're so excited to share it with you. You can find all of the information about it at moveyourmind.me. Yeah, and I mean, is it something, have you seen in, I guess, the football, in the AFL community and sport in general, mental health for a lot of the reasons that you're saying with, you know, being boiled down to a number, a lot of these societal things you're talking about, have you seen that being a big issue in, in general, in, in sport, in AFL? Um, no bigger than in society, I wouldn't say. I mean, yeah. we, the same questions that, you know, again, to the point that we we're talking about, we're all unique, but we're all people. So the experience is not drastically different. I just think that, like, there's two things at play here. One is that football is an extremely highly pressurised environment. It's, you know, you mentioned earlier being in the public eye at a young age. Well, these kids are 18 and they're expected to be perfect. And my pushback to the general footballing public at different stages or just people that I've spoken to is like, you know, if you're offered $7 million at 18, what are you going to say? No, give me a spell. Like there's no chance that people would turn that down. But they act like they would. And that is the, the craziest thing to me. But the other thing is, is like my, my question that I'd pose to people is, what would you do if you were given $7 million to play football at 18? Like what were you doing at 18? Like how capable would you have been to take on that financial opportunity and the responsibility and, and commitment that is required to execute on that at the age of 18 when you've just finished school. Like, it's just not something that people can get wrapped their heads around, I don't think. And again, other people's opinions are important to a point, but not in the broad landscape of Twitter or anything like that. So I, I think that's one part. It's the pressurised environment. The other part is that every single footballer, and I, I was listening to a, an NFL sort of media personality talk about this, and I thought it was a really good way to put it. The thing that the football public forget is that the best footballer they've seen is the best footballer they've ever seen. And it's probably, you know, the captain of their local team who's getting 25, 30 disposals in Division Two in the Western Districts Football League, right? That's the best footballer they've ever seen personally. Like, I, that's the best they've played with. Mm-hmm. He's not even good enough to play in Division One, let alone play in the VFL let alone play in the reserves of the AFL, let alone play in the AFL, let alone be a player that can contribute at the top stage. And I think just the distance between, you know, oh, that guy could have made it, but they didn't. And they didn't make it for whatever reason. And at the end of the day, it's because they weren't good enough. And if they get injured, it's still because they weren't good enough because they weren't capable of their body handling the stresses of the game. And I'm not having a go at anyone. I'm just saying that the distance between you know, the, the player that you think is great and the actual greatness of the Lance Franklins and the, the Gary Ablets of the game is so, so far. So with that in mind, when young players come into the game, they've been the best player they've ever seen mm. at every level along the way. And when I walked in to the AFL environment, I had been the best player in my team since I was 12 years old, pretty much, give or take, at least in the best three or four. And I suddenly walked in and I was now playing against the best players that have ever played in the last 15 years, give or take. And that is a shock to the system for a lot of people because there's a huge reality check, ego check, you know, sort of bring back to earth moment that happens, I think. And then trying to sort of redefine your identity in the mix of a whole other bunch of players who are insecure and trying to work out their own AFL experiences does provide you know, this sort of sense of identity crisis, I would say, when you enter. 
But equally, you know, probably in the time at the Bulldogs, we averaged a 20 to 25% list turnover. So- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 20 to 25% of the people that you're playing with every single day, which is essentially 10 or 12 people, are worried about not having a job in the next six months. Yeah, well. And, you know, a further 10 of them may be worried about getting traded and a further 10 of them are going, am I going to get a game this week? And so there's just this sort of 75% number, if I had to estimate, that are uncomfortable all the time in the spotlight under the scrutiny of the AFL public and the media that goes along with it. So it's the nature of team sport, but it's the nature of professional sport as a whole. Yeah, it's a tough thing. And and it, it is. It's so young to be, I mean, even players that have been around for a while in your mid-20s, they're still in relative terms young. And yeah. you've and you've had an experience in, you know, one part of life, I guess, if you're going straight from school into that community and you're not, it's sort of almost another version, I'd imagine, of being in school or having, you know, this yeah. whole bubble around you where you're sort of sheltered from other parts of life, which I guess what I hear about in sport and the, uh, I guess the mental health side of when you finish your career, how do you then integrate into society and find, re- redefine your identity, find what are you going to do? And how do you sort of go from um, being addicted? Like, like what you were saying before, you know, even for you, how, how was that? I guess you consciously made that, but was it still a shock to the system from, you know, playing in a winning grand final at such a young age, almost a hundred thousand people, you know, screaming while you're kicking the goal that won won the match and then you know two years later you're you're trying to find a new path for yourself like is that was that um like how could that not be a shock to the system yeah i'll 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 uh i'll take a little bit of a detour first just to double down on the like the young bit and then i'll answer that question so the afl just signed a four and a half billion dollar tv rights deal right and there'll be all this hoorah about this that and the other but the reason why it's four and a half billion dollars is because of the players and when I got traded back from the Bulldogs, or to the Bulldogs, I should say, I was 19 years old. I did a sort of like kiss the baby moment, Tom arrives at the kennel sort of thing, which was down at Williamstown North Primary School. And, uh, you know, do a clinic with some <laughs> primary school kids, the sun's out. And then we do a press conference. This is my first press conference as a Western Bulldogs player. And the first question is, oh, like, you know, what's it like to be back in Victoria or, you know, what do you think about this or that? And I was like, yeah, dog, great. So they actually started kind of nice. And one of the second or third question I got asked was, so what do you think this means for the overall trade uh, player trade landscape? Because I was sort of the first player to really get out of their deal at the age of uh, 19. And I still had a further year on my contract to run, but we didn't negotiate it. There was a sort of a whole sort of um, process that went behind the trade getting done. And I'm, now when I look back at that, at the time I was like, I don't know, like I'm 19, like why are you asking me this question? But that's the like that is the mindset that people have towards footballers is like you should have all the answers. You're getting paid so much money. Yeah. I'm like I'm 19. Like most kids aren't even like most kids are on a gap year. Like what are we I talking could, about? I could barely string a sentence together at 19. It's like how the yeah how the hell are you meant to answer the exactly? It's yeah, like, like so much pressure. Was, 
so how am I supposed to understand this like multi-dynamic, <laughs> like hugely profitable, you know, multidisciplinary industry that is associated with, you know, 15 million people across the country or whatever's the number is. I'm like, it just baffles me. But at the other bookend, when I finished, um, I remember uh, one of the great things that I had was choice, as you mentioned in the question, and that was the, the choice to walk away on my own terms. And I walked into the football club for the last time. You know, I'd seen the greats of the Western Bulldogs retire. I'd sort of heard Dale Morris speak. I'd heard, um, you know, Matthew Boyd. I'd heard Bob Murphy. And I'd heard all these players talk about, you know, for 20 minutes and the, the grief and how significant it had been for them to be at the club and how much of a sense of loss they had leaving. And, and they deserved that. They'd earned that right. I hadn't. I'd been there for four and a half years. I'd had a lot of, you know, I'd had a lot of challenges, some good games, some bad ones, and obviously some success as a team. So I walked in and I said two things. Um, I was lucky enough to have my partner Anna with me. And, and I said, firstly, I just want to say to everyone in the room, um, you know, thank you for being a part of my journey. And I just want you all to know without a shadow of a doubt that you're the reason I stayed as long as I did, not the reason I'm leaving. I really wanted to be clear about that. And the second thing I said was, if any of you players in the room um, are thinking about renegotiating your contract, now would be a really good time. <laughs> Which <laughs> yeah. just... Just, just let me sort of, you know, diffuse the room because, you know, I think everyone was probably feeling a bit tense and they'd known my struggles in the past. And I wanted them to know that I was walking out by choice and with some happiness and, and a, a fond memory of a, a challenging but over, a, overwhelmingly positive period of time in my life. And then I had an absolute ball for two weeks. It was the greatest sense of freedom and excitement and, you know, relief that I'd ever had. And I remember sitting there on a Saturday watching the Bulldogs getting absolutely pumped by Frio or something, having a beer and just like, this is just, how good is this? <laughs> and then like two weeks later, I was like, holy hell, what am I going to do with my life? Because to your point, and I actually, you know, you're, you're probably the first person who's asked the question actually understood the process of leaving sport, which is, you're, you, uh, me less than others, I would say, but you are a child because mm -hmm. you get told from the age of five, well, even beforehand, but let's just take the schooling experience. From the age of five, be here, do this, do that, come home, eat this, all the way to your 18. When you're a footballer, it's not really any different. Turn up this time, do that, do this. Um, what do you need? How can I help? You know, it's basically like you've got a bunch of teachers and it's not, it's not they're not there to coddle you, but they're there to basically make sure you have as little barrier to performance um, success as possible. And then you leave the game and you get kicked off the club email in about five minutes, which destroys your calendar because you don't have access to it anymore. You lose all your contacts. You don't know how to, oh, it's terrible. And, um, you know, it sort of sets in the, you oh, what am I going to do? Now, I earned a lot of money um, in my football career. Um, you know, the math is not particularly difficult. A uh, million dollars a year left, two and a half years left, right? But I also paid a lot of, a whole heap of taxes at that time. So, uh, and I'm, that's not me complaining. It's just, this, that's the nature of having How super high income in short periods. I can't, can't spread it. I can't do anything fancy. It's income, it's wages, I pay tax. So I earned a lot of money and I was lucky enough to have financial um, freedom in the sense that I had the ability to walk away from my income and take the time to look at what life would look like next. But I didn't have enough money to not work and mm -hmm. no players really do. And I think that's something that, you know, perhaps some people don't quite grasp in the sense that, you know, 
If anyone else in their regular life was told that the highest income earning capability you're ever going to have for your entire life is between the ages of 22 to 27 or 30, they would go, oh my God, this is terrifying. And I wasn't terrified, but I was very, very clear and honest with myself. And I sat down with my dad in my backyard and we did the math and it was like, okay, yeah, this is good. You're in a good position. You got to find a job because you got to pay a lot of bills and you've got all this stuff that you've got to do. And and I and to the point of sort of fulfillment and satisfaction, I really wanted to work. Yeah. Um, so that sort of real discomfort actually spurred me on to to really investigate. And, and to be honest, to be frank, I, you know. Other than a few speaking gigs that popped up, which actually I wasn't advertising for, I I didn't even think I was going to do it. It just people asked me to share my story. I I, I really volunteered for the the first six months out of the game. I didn't have a job. I just, you know, I committed to play football with an amateur club and they gave me the opportunity basically to sit in on different companies' meetings and learn some things and perhaps do some programs of work and, you know, get exposed to different people and, and and that's pretty much how I got by. I, I really didn't earn any income from basically May until the following January. Um, but the other thing that uh, that happened was that I did sort of see the path forward in particular in the speaking side of things and I was like, okay, well, I know there's an income here. I know that I'm making a positive Im- impact and I feel like I'm, I'm quite good at it. So let's go down that path and, and much like I'm sure what you experienced, Nick, I got to the start of 2020 and was like, you know, I've got 100 gigs or 50 gigs or whatever the number was. And um, I reckon I did two of them and then the world shut down. Yeah. And that time I was scared. That time I was concerned because now I'm looking at, well, if this doesn't open up in the next couple of months, I'm 12 months removed from basically not really having an income uh, or not having a stable one at least. And it was in those moments with the fear and terror and sort of, you know, uncertainty that gripped the world. And again, this is not a comparable thing. I'm not saying I had it worse than others or anything like that. I'm just saying that it obviously upset my world just like it upset everyone's. That's when I thought for structure, I need to, to do something. And that's when I started writing the book for the first time by myself in the room of my house, you know, which was... At that stage, a 150-year-old house that needed a renovation terribly. So um, that's that was actually uh, the first sort of next iteration of what I was doing for work. And then uh, I started to, to, again, basically volunteer with the technology company that I work with. And I've always sort of operated on the sense it's like, I'll give something to you. And then at some point when I can show that I've given you value and that I've contributed, then we can talk about obviously um, me being rewarded proportionally. And in a sense, COVID was a really tough time. Um, but in another sense, you know, we, um, you know, we've NFL pregnant with our first child um, who was born this year. And, you know, I found that I actually didn't want to just do speaking. I didn't just want to be a talking head, that I actually wanted to do a number of different things. And I was lucky that COVID sort of spurred me into doing that. It's a 10 year anniversary of Brax, and we've relaunched with the classic white pair. We've also got new styles coming out super soon. We're donating a dollar from every pair to mental health, currently to one in five. You can find all of this at www.underbracks.com. Mate, well, congratulations on on the first child as well. And I love that story. And I think, you know, a big thing I talk about a lot on this podcast is, you know, the the events that happen in life really shape that longer term picture. And it's, you know, it's like that saying, 
life's life doesn't make sense life only makes sense backwards but must be lived forwards and we we sort of have to just keep you know taking what's in front of us and similar thing for me during COVID I was overseas I'd come home had all this time free ended up writing the book starting this podcast and it actually became the time I needed to take a step back and do things that then propelled things forwards and added you know a new dimension to what I was doing and I think it's a great way to look at life and everything you know brings a new opportunity and you know, now from what you've done, it's all, you know, you can see the story unfolding and how it all comes together, but you, you had to be able to, I guess, be reactive and, you know, take take what was in front of you at each step to, to get to where you are now. So again, I think it's a great message and, you know, love everything you're talking about here. I've got five questions we um, wrap each interview up with. I'm just conscious of time here, but before I go to that, do you... Uh, Personally, in, in your day-to-day life, do you have things for your own mental health that you do? Exercise, is that still, you know, a big part of your life or meditation or are there sort of daily things that you do to keep yourself grounded? Yeah, I mean, exercise has always been a big part of it. Honestly speaking, um, uh, it's been more challenging since uh, the arrival of the bub and I've got some work to do uh, on the uh, on the old rig. Um, and look, then part of that is the fact that you know your football injuries don't go away when you finish playing football. I've had you know, probably dozen surgeries. I've had a back issue since I was fourteen. I've had you know multiple broken fingers, shoulder reconstructions, ankle operations. Like I've had a pretty good fair share. Like probably slightly above average for an AFL footballer, but certainly <laughs> not as bad as some of my other teammates. Um, but look, I think the one thing that is really, really evident for me following from my football career is that doing purposeful work that you believe in with people that you care about and want to work with is a remedy for most ailments, I would say, mentally for me. Um, mm-hmm. So that I would say is, an, and, and look, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Um, again, it was a journey. It took a lot of time, took a, took a lot of effort. My overall mantra in that front is just fake it till you make it because that's what I've had to do. And I, and by the way, for all the people who are listening, still don't know what your attention time is, Nick. But, um, no one knows it's got to figure it figured out. No one. I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or if you're, you know, the, no. you're starting your first job at McDonald's. No one has it all figured out. Everything is a challenge. There was always going to be complexity and things that you come across in your life that you're uncertain on how to deal with. So, the best thing that I've found is just put a version of yourself out there that, you know, if you want to achieve something, put yourself out there, have a go. Um, you can always go backwards and start again, or you can always pivot and change. And, um, you know, and I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, again, take away the financial burdens that many people struggle with. If you want to do something, fake it till you make it. There's my general sentiment on life. That seems to have worked to me. So, um yeah, that's th- those two things. I saw a psychologist for probably thousands of hours over the last, I don't know how many years, but I've found that, you know, over the course of that journey from probably 2015 to 2000 and say probably the start of this year, that it just sort of, we got to know each other so well that it just sort of lost its, you know, meaningfulness. Um, but yeah, they're probably the main things. I, I, I'm not like, I'm not a huge meditator. I'm not, you know, Again, it's for me. It's always been about balance and just trying to find work that really sort of fulfills me and satisfies me and allows me to stretch. I suppose the intellectual muscles that were pretty sort of dormant during my footballing career. Yeah, no, I love that answer, and I think yeah, the fake it till you make it is such an important 
um, thing to remember. And and I think what you said, you know, finding things that have meaning for you, you know, what what's purposeful and that, you know, it's different for everyone, but if you can find that then, and sort of more focus on that daily, am I doing things that actually fit in my value system that are meaningful to me rather than focusing on all the external things, you know, how much money am I making? When am I going to get to the next step? What's because we can't control that stuff. And like you said, that stuff's not, is not what's going to make us happy anyway. So if you just always bring it back to that, you can't go too wrong because at least you strip everything else away. At least you're doing something you actually, truly value and care about so i think it's yeah, yeah and if, love the if you follow a path of something that you love and that you are you know willing to commit to being really good at that money will come like and yeah. again i'm very cognizant of the fact i try and be as authentic as i can i've been paid a lot of money in my life um i earned a lot of money as a footballer i get all that and you know financial hardship is an extraordinarily challenging thing that affects so many australians and obviously people around the world my general sentiment is that you know there is a always a balance between the two things, but if you can find a way to navigate purposeful work, you will find a way, I suppose, to get better at that work and scale that work, and hopefully, um, you know, the money will follow. Absolutely, no, couldn't agree more, mate. So um, these last five questions, these can just be sort of whatever answer comes to mind. Um, the first one is, what's your best childhood memory, or one one of the best that comes to mind? Uh, kicking the football around uh, in the mud at quarter time, half time, three quarter time at Mullah Mullah Reserve with my dad in the in the rain. I mean, it was just that was <laughs> I would might have been three, four. I did it my whole juniors. Like it's just that was sort of the start of my um, love for football and love for community. So and, and the community footballing element, obviously. Yeah, love it. Uh, what do you think is the biggest burden on mental health in society at the moment? Uh, the general sentiment that we deal with all of it as a retrospective problem. Uh, and by that, I mean you triaging really significant illness um, as opposed to, you know, trying to proactively lift the capability of the community. And I think that permeates into the fact that, you know, it's more tangible to go give more funding to the hospitals, which we obviously mm-hmm. need. Look, I've got personal family members, you know, intimate um, and immediate family members who have utilised services such as that in the past, and that they are very important. I'm certainly not knocking them. But there will never be enough psychologists, psychiatrists or doctors to deal with this problem ever. No. The barrier to entry is just too big. So, um, you know, I think my, my position is that wherever people voluntarily congregate, whether that be community football clubs or the churches or the you know community groups or schools or workplaces, whatever it is, the responsibility is on those um, those that infrastructure and the people that occupy that infrastructure to improve the overall um, impact that they are individually making and obviously collectively making on the mental health of the people that are a part of those communities. So I feel like that's the only way forward. No, I love that answer. And, you know, I talk about this a lot. And like you said, you know, the reactive stuff that's out there, it's critical. It has to be there. But the government needs to put more, way more money into into preventative services. And we need to be, you know, in the schooling system, we need to be integrating more education. And, you know, there's so many things that need to be done if we want to make proper change long term. So, yeah, I think it's really important. Answer. Yeah. 
And we can't rely solely on the government either, unfortunately. No, no because, we definitely can't. <laughs> because yeah. judging, but I mean, like, you know, like, again, again, it's not a criticism of mental health first aid, but we've trained 2 million people or something in the last five years. It's like, how can that possibly be a linear, consistent level of training capability? Like yeah. it's like solar panels. It's you put subsidies into solar panels, and there's five million solar panel companies that pop up. So, all I'm saying is that whilst mental health first aid is important, it can't be the only solution. It, it just no. can't be. So, um, you know, again, reengaging with our community groups and and forging a, a sense of you know responsibility and turning Aussie mateship from this physical laborious have a beer with your mates into taking care of each other as a sort of ethos of our com- uh, country. And look, just generally speaking, bringing people together, I mean, as opposed to us all bickering, like we're, we're all, we, we live in a fantastic country with its challenges, its mistakes and all that comes with it. I'm not certainly not proponent that we are perfect, but I've been to many parts of the world. Um, I've been to, you know, places that, you know, like Denmark, which is, got its issues as well and, you know, has been voted the happiest country on earth for the last 15 years, as my mother will continue to tell me. But Australia is a, is a country worth, you know, progressing for. It's worth supporting and it's worth us all working together to make it the best possible place for the most amount of people. It is. I mean, even living in the US, you know, it shows me firsthand. You, you, you leave Australia for long enough and live somewhere else and you see how amazing of a place it is. You know, the quality of life, the social systems we have, like it's a great country and, you know, we need to, we need to do what we can to do all the things you're talking about there. Uh, what's your personal definition of happiness? It's uh, a good question. Uh, I wouldn't say... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not convinced happiness is the happiness is a tough goal to go for, right? Like it's like the conversation we we're having earlier. So, um, you know, for me, it's uh, it's living a, a, a life that's worthwhile living. You know, doing things that interest you, that inspire you, connecting with people. You know, my whole life has always been about the relationships that I've built and the, the people that I've kept, and and you know, some of the ones that I've, I've obviously left behind. So. Um, yeah, it's some combination of what you do and who you do it with, I think, is is, is happiness for me and trying to find the, the sort of complexion of those two things that, that uh, is most conducive to you enjoying life at the very least for, for a, a majority of it. It's never going to be perfect. No, no such thing, but, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, what Two more here. Uh, what are you most afraid of? Uh I think the thing that scares me the most, uh, I don't, this is not really an individual fear. The thing that scares me the most, I suppose, about where we're at as a society, particularly with regards to the mental health side of things is, you know, when I look across the landscape of solutions at the moment um, and people who are trying, whether they are trying authentically or not, doesn't really matter in the context of this comment. Um, my fear is that, we don't know the answer yet. And I feel like that uh, at the moment, broadly speaking across Australia, at least, the employees have the, the leverage. And so they are getting support and opportunity for their overall employee experience to be improved. 
My fear is that as the tides change and that perhaps the leverage swings back to the employer, if we don't find solutions in the next five or six years that are actually effective and sustainable, that the tap for resourcing will be turned off and it will be put in the too hard basket. And the next wave of, you know, social change will replace this one and we just won't get the outcomes that we need. And the other you know, component of that is just that the the impacts that you know our young people have experienced in the last two years, um, combined with the overall landscape of social media, is something that really terrifies me as a, a new parent, um, because I just don't know how to deal with it, and I, I don't know that anyone does. Um, and yeah, that is that's something that's scary. That there's potentially millions and millions of young Australians that aren't going to know how to cope with the life that they are living, where things are net more, never been more expensive. They're less likely than ever, I would say, to be able to buy a home. They're more likely to think that they're not good enough because they can see the the scope of the world in a way that we never did when we were growing up. And that yeah, that worries me. It really does. Yeah. And like you said, there's no clear answer to it. And it's something that, yeah, we need, we need to be addressing right now because we, we really don't know where that's going to lead. It's a, it's an important thing. Uh, final one. What are you most proud of? Uh, I would say I'm most proud of the, the people that I would consider, um, uh, most important to me are fantastic people and genuinely some of the most impressive, well-valued, um, consistent, considered people that I have ever come across. And if that's a reflection of me, which I believe that it is, then I would say that's what I'm most proud of. Um, it's something that I've always you know, really, really valued over the course of my Life and, um, yeah, we'll continue to do so. I have a small circle, but one that I think is, yeah, particularly, particularly one to be proud of. Yeah, I think it's a great way to finish up. And, you know, they say we become a product of the people that we surround ourselves with. So I think, yeah, really good answer and loved everything you talked about, mate, which we wish we could have had longer. And um, as a final thing, where anyone listening, if they want to find your book or learn more about you, where where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, the book's called Nowhere to Hide. Um, it's in all bookstores. Uh, it's online. It's on Booktopia, um, Angus and Robertson. If if otherwise, my Instagram is tomboyd17. You can find all of the sort of interviews and, and insight um, in my bio or whatever they call it, mate. I'm not much of a social media guru. But, yeah, look, I, I, at the end of the day, I just really hope that the book's helpful for people. Um, you know, I was a young man who grew up in a very unique position that experienced things that, you know, everyone does just under a slightly uh, brighter spotlight perhaps than others. Absolutely. Well, we'll put all the links in the in the show notes and I'm sure the book will help a lot of people, mate. And I know, you know, what you're doing is helping people and speaking out about it. It's a, such an important thing to do. I sort of commend you for it. Love connecting with people like you and keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, thank you for making the time to have this chat today. Fantastic to meet you. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, man. Thanks to Tom Boyd for joining me today for Move Your Mind. And just another reminder that you can join the Move Your Mind community by going to moveyourmind.me. You can purchase the Move Your Mind book by going to nickbrax.com book. 
and you can purchase a pair of underbracks with a dollar from every pair sold going towards mental health. You can find all of the links at www.underbracks.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.